This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very privileged to have with us today Dr. Alan Doctor. Alan is the Professor of Pediatrics and Biochemistry at the Washington University in St. Louis, and he is Chief of Critical Care at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Alan, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Alan, uh, for at least a decade or more, um, you've been studying, thinking about, and writing about um, red cells. And uh, I, I think uh, around the world, our colleagues are probably most curious to know, how do we interpret the uh, recent literature on uh, red cell transfusions? How should we be thinking about this issue today? Uh, thanks, Jeff. I mean, we're actually going through a really exciting paradigm change in transfusion medicine. Um, we used to think that uh, the appropriate thing to do with a critically ill patient was to build a hemoglobin reserve so that patients under physiologic stress would be better able to deal with that stress. We're now beginning to understand that donor red cells can cause harm, and if that harm can exceed the need of the patient, then we're actually hurting children by giving them blood. Um, so what I'd like to do is I'll review some of that evidence, the literature that uh, indicates the impact of transfusion on outcome and an approach to sort of recalibrating our, our therapy. Uh, here are my disclosures. Um, and specifically, Jeff, I'd like to review a uh, mounting body of evidence uh, which requires us to question the appropriateness of current transfusion practice. And specifically, we'll question the use of red cell transfusions to maintain a pre-specified circulating red cell mass in the absence of other clinical information. But first, I'd like to zoom out a bit and ask everybody to rethink red cells. In fact, this is a living tissue that functions as its own organ. And here's a few facts that might help reorient the thinking. There's about 20 to 30 trillion red cells that are circulating in the average adult. And it's about 7% of our body mass. They comprise easily a quarter of the cells in the human body. There's about 1.4 million red cells produced a second, 200 billion a day. They have a lifespan of 100 to 120 days and we replace 1% of the circulating mass every day. So we also produce about 250 kilos of red cells over a lifetime. So we, in an evolutionary sense, devote a considerable amount of energy to maintaining this as a healthy tissue. Arteriovenous transit requires only about 20 seconds at rest. And red cells travel about 400 kilometers prior to senescence and clearance. And what we've learned also is that red cells have major roles beyond simple gas transport. They regulate regional vascular tone. They're an important component of our antioxidant systems. They participate in immune regulation, in particular with self-recognition. This is a major problem. Also with alloimmunization in, in uh, children that receive serial transfusions. And they participate in the physiologic response to hypoxia, both at the organism and at a regional level. And it's very important to remember that donor red cells, okay, red cells that have been removed to the body, processed, and stored, lose many of these functions. So when we transfuse, 
we're not giving tissue that's the same as the native tissue itself. So really, red cell function is oxygen transport, plain and simple. Plain and simple, the goal of a transfusion should be to improve oxygen transport. And the current focus of investigation in transfusion medicine is to ensure that that happens. This is something that was assumed to be true when I was in training, when we were in training, and the goal was just to normalize the hemoglobin concentration in ill children. However, we've learned now that if we do that, we actually impair oxygen transport by mixing donor red cells into the circulating pool of native red cells. Alan, what exactly are the differences between the donor and the native red cells? There's been an explosion of knowledge in this subject, Jeff, and let me go through some of the, the information that we have. So first, and one that's easy to understand, is the rheologic properties of red cells change. And there's a progressive loss of both deformability and an increase in adhesion to activated endothelium. So all else being equal, for the same pressure gradient through a vessel of the same caliber, it's harder to push a, a donor red cell through a capillary than a native red cell, and they interfere with progress of native red cells themselves. Metabolism in the, native, in the donor red cell is also altered. We forget that they're really a living tissue. They require glycolysis for energy metabolism, and this becomes fundamentally impaired during storage. They lose the ability to regenerate ATP. The consequence is that ion pumps fail. They lose 2,3-DPG, which is a product of glycolysis, which alters P50. If you remember, P50 is the way that we quantify oxygen affinity for hemoglobin. And when P50, when DPG is depleted and P50 falls, oxygen loading and delivery is impaired. Red cells become avid oxygen traps as they traverse the lung, but fail to deliver oxygen when they traverse tissue. Reducing equivalence, the important ones, NADPH and glutathione are depleted. Red cells become vulnerable to oxidative stress and the intraerythrocytic pH goes down and lactate goes up. There's also in the bag generation of significant cytokines and bioreactive agents. There is elaboration of red cell derived microvesicles that are vasoactive and pro-inflammatory. There's an increase in soluble CD40 ligand and lysophosphatidylcholine, which can activate and prime neutrophils. Most importantly, however, there's red cells lose control of regional blood flow and they are vasoactive elements. They fail in their context response of control of vasoactive effectors in plasma. There's a loss of nitrosethyl and nitric oxide content and a disruption of NO metabolism. This is the most important feature, Jeff, I think, that causes some of the problems with, uh, with transfusion. So Alan, what is the evidence that transfusion leads to harm? What are some of the Sentinel papers that we should be aware of? Jeff, the Sentinel paper that really changed the way we think about this, the first one that led to the paradigm change was a trick trial led by Pauli Bear. They randomized about 400 patients that were critically ill, either to a restrictive strategy of seven or liberal strategy of nine. While this was a negative trial, they demonstrated that the liberal transfusion uh, group had a slightly higher mortality. Overall, the p-value was 0.1. However, if they began to look at the less ill or the younger patients, they had a significant increase in mortality with liberal transfusion, suggesting that only the most ill patients who benefited from transfusion, so the less you needed the blood, 
the more harmful it was, and in fact, it led to mortality. Interestingly, they also showed an alarming increase in heart attacks in the liberal transfusion group, which really presents a paradox that we'll explain later. The first trial in children was the TriPICU study, which was uh, performed by Jacques Lacroix and also published in the New England Journal in 2007. This was a non-inferiority trial, Jeff, which showed that the same approach of giving uh, transfusing for a hemoglobin of seven was not inferior to a transfusion approach of transfusing to a hemoglobin target of nine. There's really an explosion of trials, and the best way to, uh, to, to give an overview is to review a Cochrane review that was published in 2012 by Jeff Carson and Polly Bear. In this, they summarized a number of trials that first selected only those with the most stringent um, quality. Um, and what they found is the following that um, with regard to in-hospital mortality, a restrictive transfusion strategy was favored. With regard to uh, protection against myocardial infarction, a restrictive transfusion strategy was favored. Likewise, for, with regard to stroke as an outcome, a restrictive transfusion strategy was favored. Gould also reviewed the literature and found that transfusion also increases the risk of nosocomial infection, increases the risk of uh, cardiac surgery, and paradoxically in patients you're trying to wean from a ventilator, retards the progress of those patients. It also reduces the quality of the outcome in trauma patients. The specific issue about giving transfusions to patients with MI has been explored in some detail because this presents a paradox. It is logical that improving oxygen content should likewise improve oxygen delivery, particularly when there's a vascular bed that has a restricted area of flow. In fact, we were all taught that this is one population in whom transfusions need really could be most beneficial. However, this was recently reviewed by Chatterjee in JAMA in 2013, and in fact, the mortality risk ratio is three for causing harm with liberal transfusion strategies in patients hospitalized with an MI, and the number needed to harm is only eight. This is striking risk increase by giving transfusions to pa patients with MIs. Surprisingly, transfusions also increase the likelihood of death when you're bleeding. This is um, also paradoxical, but Villanueva in the New England Journal in 2013 published a series where uh, patients with upper GI, adult patients with upper GI bleeding were randomized also to either a liberal or to a restrictive transfusion uh, strategy. And as you can see here, the liberal group had an increased risk of mortality. This is quite difficult to understand. So. In summary, transfusion increases harm, particularly in those that are least critically ill. And in fact, um, the risk has been compared to common events uh, that cause serious risk. And as a population in America, we are more likely to have a harm from a transfusion than to have a motor vehicle accident fatality, to be shot, have an airplane accident, or be hurt in a fall, which is striking. 
There's another class of patients, Jeff, where it was presumed that trans liberal transfusion strategy was necessary. In fact, was shown in a, in a randomized trial to be of value. And this was the famous bundle for uh, aggressive early therapy for goal-directed therapy for septic shock. And one of the goals in that bundle was to transfuse to a hemoglobin of 10. We've now learned as those components have been dissected that in fact the transfusion component in that bundle was not necessary. And recently in the New England Journal in 2014, seven versus nine was tested in adults with septic shock and seven again was non-inferior as long as appropriate fluid resuscitation was administered. Quite the converse, however, we found that transfusion negatively impacts resilience to infection. And in a recent review in JAMA in 2014, just a few months ago, we found the pooled risk of infection in hospitalized patients given blood increases, and particularly so for, for serious infections. Alan, that's an excellent overview of the storage lesions and the, um, and the literature to date. But it is still not clear to me, and I suspect to many colleagues around the world, how raising oxygen content in the patient leads to apparently impaired delivery with these patients who are experiencing increased myocardial infarction. How, how does that happen? What's the mechanism? Now, this has been troubling, and in fact, it's caused significant skepticism in the field because it doesn't quite make sense. The solution is understanding that the most important feature of oxygen delivery is flow, which trumps content. And so, theoretically, if a donor red cell impairs blood flow, even though content was increased, oxygen delivery to tissue will fail. And that is, Jeff, in fact, what happens. I showed you a little bit about the rheology and the adhesion, but that's only a trivial feature of the problem. The main feature is that red cells are vasoactive themselves, and red cells will interfere with vessel caliber and inappropriately constrict it. There's some really fascinating science behind that. Let me take you through it. Um, the most important thing to understand to begin with is that flow is the most important determinant of oxygen delivery and not content. Here's an interesting study where, for other reasons, they were evaluating the relationship between flow and content in two human populations that have different adaptations to altitude, Tibetans and Americans. But what they were able to show, though, and if you look on the y-axis on the bottom left, they show oxygen delivery has a very tight relationship to forearm blood flow, whereas in the bottom plot on the right, you can see that if you look on the y-axis, oxygen delivery loses its relationship to hemoglobin concentration. So the principal determinant of O2 delivery is flow regardless of content. If content is low, human body can increase flow by log orders and improve O2 delivery. Even if O2 content, even if O2 content is high, if flow is impaired, we have tissue ischemia. Alan, how do red cells, apparently especially donated red cells, uh, impair flow? Well, it's interesting. This was a phenomenon that's puzzled physiologists for quite some time. We've never really understood what governs blood flow distribution in the body. By that I mean the distribution of flow has to change when there's a change in O2 consumption. For example, when you begin walking, the vessels supplying your calves and your thighs dilate. When you eat, vessels supplying the mesentery uh, dilate. Um, the system that governs that has never really been clear.
And it's a system where perfusion lag must be sensed, flow, me, flow must be redistributed, and this needs to be effective in space and in time. And the first clue was back in the early 60s when a famous physiologist named Guyton first established the link between oxygen content in red blood cells and vasodilation in the circulation. He performed this very interesting experiment. He took dogs and cannulated the femoral artery and eliminated autonomic input into the, into the circulation so that the only thing that, that could influence the vessel caliper was the perfusing blood itself. He perfused blood with progressively less oxygen content. If you look at the top plot along the x-axis, on the left, these are red cells that are fully oxygenated. As you progress to the right, he perfused the leg with red cells that are progressively less well oxygenated. And as you can see, if you track up the y-axis, that flow progressively increased. So as he perfused the dog's leg, with blood that had progressively less oxygen content, flow increased despite the same perfusion pressure. We have to deduce that vasodilation occurred. In fact, when you analyze this data in a slightly different way, the importance of this reflex becomes very clear. Look at the lower plot. The x-axis is the same. The most oxygenated blood is on the left. As the guyton progressively deoxygenated the blood, the data points move to the right. On the y-axis, instead of flow, he plots out to delivery. If you follow the dotted line, that's what you should see as you progressively deoxygenate the blood, a linear loss in O2 delivery. However, what really happens is that as blood flow increases, O2 delivery is stabilized until the reflex is overwhelmed. This occurs somewhere between a hemoglobin saturation of 60 or 70. So you can see that the, that the body that red cells somehow are signaling to blood vessels to dilate when the O2 content is less robust, or when the red cells themselves are de desaturating more avidly, they must be exporting a vasodilator that causes this. And in fact, this is what, what occurs. We've learned that red cells are vascular control elements, and the groundbreaking work was done by Jonathan Stamler at Duke, who's now at Case Western. We've learned that red cells exhibit, exhibit control over vasoactive effectors in plasma in a way that supports the findings that Guyton described. And the control is achieved by either trapping nitric oxide or deploying an NO congener S-nitrosethyl, which is a vasodilator. It's a very potent vasodilator. And red cells behave differently as a function of their O2 content. So red cells draw in nitric oxide adds to hemoglobin just like any other diatomic gas. Oxygen, carbon monoxide, cyanide, all can bind to heme. When those red cells travel through the lung, that NO group moves from once when it was initially bound to the iron, it moves to what's called S-nitrosethyl linkage, which is on the globin chain. When that red cell now goes through the body and delivers oxygen, the NO group has to leave. Its binding on the globin chain is favored in oxyhemoglobin, disfavored when it deoxygenates. And it needs to flip back either to the iron on heme or it can be exported through a membrane protein into plasma where it can act as a vasodilator. So what happens is with avid oxygen extraction and hypoxic tissue, these S-nitrosethyls are exported from perfusing red cells 
and cause dilation. So a red cell entering a vascular bed with perfusion insufficiency exports nitric oxide in proportion to oxygen. It leaves behind a bigger vessel than it entered, recruits new red cells. Each red cell then desaturates less avidly as the oxygen gradient improves and the system is recalibrated at a new point. This requires complex chemistry and interaction between membrane proteins on the red cell and plasma thiols. This system fails in the process of uh, uh, transfusion. So Alan, uh, we understand from what you've uh, well described how uh, red cells influence uh, vasodilation in the normal human host. How is it that the stored red cell disrupts this process? Well, we approached that question uh, and published those data in uh, PNAS in about 2007. We pooled a number of red cells that were collected by appropriate American Association of Blood Bank standards, and we asked a couple of questions. One, do these red cells have a normal amount of nitric oxide in them? And two, are they able to vasodilate as do normal red cells? And we found out that the answer to both questions was no. So red cells, as you can see on the left, lose nitric oxide content almost immediately upon processing and storage, and they also lose the ability to dilate a blood vessel. This was all ex vivo bench testing. Another group, Jonathan Stamler's group, now at Case Western with Jim Reynolds, showed that in fact, stored red cells impair oxygen delivery to tissue. This is the first time this was truly shown. So he also showed that you can recover the loss function by replacing the lost NO. So he used, the, he used a transfusion model in both mice and in rats. And what you can see here is that if what he plots on the left is tissue oxygen content in muscle. And on the, on the x-axis, this is time after a transfusion. Now follow the line with the open circles. This is the reduction, reduction in tissue O2 content in mice that have been hemodiluted and then given stored blood. Now, this occurred as a, increased as a function of storage for by a week. The top plot shows what happens after a day. The bottom plot shows what happens after a week. The solid lines show what happens if you rescue those red cells. So this process can be reversed. He showed the same thing in rats. Let me summarize, that was a lot of information. Jeff, on the left, the balance favored transfusion. In the, early, in the late 90s, this was prior to TRIC and TRIPICU. Since TRIC and TRIPICU and that sort of mounting body of evidence that we reviewed, along with the information about the storage lesion biology, you can see that the balance has tipped favoring a more conservative approach. And really what, I've, what we've reviewed here is number one, donor and native red cells do not exhibit similar physiology. This is foundational information that we really need to appreciate in making these de decisions. These differences progress as a function of storage duration. Although the, the data is not yet in on the age of blood in terms of outcome, the biology clearly progresses. The important thing to recognize is that these differences, the storage lesion, uh, impairs oxygen delivery to tissue when the transfusion is administered, even by native red cells. So a donor red cell that enters the circulation can block circulatory transit of a, no, of a native red cell by either 
uh, obstructing the channel physically through impaired deformability or adhesion or because of vasoconstriction. Transfusion is a consequence, surprisingly, harms critically ill anemic patients. That is unambiguously clear. So what we've found is that there's sufficient basic translational and clinical evidence to support a fundamental practice change. Alan, um, that's a very clear overview of uh, apparently the state of the literature to this moment. But you know, I'm left wondering, you know, what do we do now? Um, does this mean uh, that the transfusion threshold is likely to become progressively lower? Uh, but even more importantly, Alan, what do you do at St. Louis Children's Hospital? Well, you raise an important point. Um, what has occurred right now is we've torn down the old structure. We haven't built up the new structure yet. In fact, TRIC and TRIPICU were destructive in terms of uh, sort of first taking down the old approach. We need to have a new one. What they've shown is that less is not worse than more, but that it's clear that just shifting the hemoglobin target isn't sufficient. That won't work. Obviously, we can't have a specific hemoglobin target across the developmental disease and condition specific spectrum. We'd have 100 different hemoglobin targets. We have to have a new way of thinking about it. However, we have to make do with what we have now. And so what we try to do is do less harm. This means approach things from a restrictive strategy when possible and use clinical judgment when we sort of don't have data support safety of a restrictive approach. We've structured it as follows. In fact, this plot was created by Jacques Lacroix and we're working with Jacques to develop um, a um, algorithmic approach. Um, let me take you through it. If you take a critically ill child, if they're in hemorrhagic shock, a transfusion is appropriate. If they're not in hemorrhagic shock, the first decision point is, do they have cardiac disease or not? If the patient has cardiac disease or has had cardiac surgery, there are three distinctions. One, if they're unstable, either cyanotic or non-cyanotic, we have to use clinical judgments. We don't have evidence to, to guide us. If they are stable, non-cyanotic patients, there are two approaches there, and basically we take a restrictive approach with these patients. While I didn't review the data, Jill Serlet out of Rochester has a nice series of papers that people should look at that guide them in this population that support the use of a restrictive strategy. However, in stable cyanotic patients, we use either a target of 9 or sometimes as high as 12, depending on if they're single ventricle patients or depending on how stable they are. If they don't have cardiac disease, again, the distinction is stable or unstable, and the definition of stable is the, is the definition used in the TRIPICU study. Um, if they're unstable, clinical judgment is appropriate. If they're stable, we use a hemoglobin target of seven. So for those that want to read about this in a little more detail, this paper was part of a issue in seminars in perinatology in 2012, entirely devoted to transfusion. It's worth a look. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Could you first please state your city and country location? And the question is this, does your institution currently have a transfusion threshold for packed red blood cells? And if so, at what level of hemoglobin is that threshold? The second part of this question is, 
does your existing transfusion threshold protocol change with condition or acuity? We're back now with Dr. Alan Doctor. Alan, um, changing ingrained practices, uh, practices that it were you know, in force over decades, uh, must be very difficult. What strategies are you using um, at your hospital to change uh, our thinking about transfusions? Well, you raise an important point, Jeff. It's not enough just to have the information available, to write a memo, to send out an email. We've taken a programmatic approach, and in fact, a number of places around the country are creating what are called blood management programs. Let me tell you a little bit about the program that we're creating at St. Louis Children's Hospital. I'm showing them here. The ones with an asterisk are already implemented. This is about a five-year plan. So what people, program leaders, need to do is sit down with the blood bank, with the hematologists, with the surgeons, with the service chiefs, and think about how they might want to, to implement something like this. It begins with blood product utilization review. This occurs through the transfusion committee at hospitals, so it's important for intensivists to have a voice on the hospital transfusion committee. Each service and provider needs to be, we need to be able to drill down and monitor transfusion practice by clinical services and providers and give them the feedback. No one is intentionally wanting to harm patients. So first they need to know what the information is and then they need to know how their behavior or transfusion practice might be different from current best practice. And what we found is that people will correct their own behavior if they've learned that there's new information. However, we have to be able to track that information. We establish transfusion guidelines that are service-specific and condition-specific in the hospital and communicate those to the service chiefs. We have to monitor both blood processing and administration review to ensure that the appropriate type of red cell unit is administered to the right patient. We have preoperative anemia management to limit the likelihood of transfusion. We have perioperative strategies to minimize transfusion likelihood. Many of those, um, there's a huge literature on this subject. We want to control blood loss from phlebotomy, which is an important cause of anemia in ICUs. We've developed a team to limit bleeding from coagulopathies and antithrombotic therapies. And we have an efficient uh, massive transfusion program. Now, it's important to realize that massive transfusions while they definitely are an indication for red cell transfusions, it's important to also manage the coagulopathy associated with that transfusion so that bleeding stops as soon as possible. That way the dose of red cells can be limited even though some red cells need to be given. Finally, we have a program or will be developing a program for management of anemia in hospitalized patients. Another important way to try to influence behavior, Jeff, is through computerized patient order entry. In fact, Eloa Adams initiated this collaborative investigation of the power of this technique to influence behavior. And what he, what he tested really is the ability of, of CPOE alerts to cause people to, um, to change behavior. So this project, um, uh, Jeff, um, was designed to test the power of computerized patient order entry in influencing transfusion behavior. And so a group, uh, 25 institutions, began to test the hypothesis that CPOE would be able to improve adoption of current breast practice. So when someone 
tried to give a transfusion in a stable, critically ill patient with a hemoglobin above seven, the following suggestion popped. And it read as follows, your patient has a normal blood pressure and the last hemoglobin was 10.5. Strong evidence suggests that in hemodynamically stable, critically ill children, a, a hemoglobin threshold of seven can decrease transfusion requirements without increasing adverse outcomes with a link to the TriPICU paper. Here's what happened. That dotted line represents the implementation. There was a dramatic reduction in transfusions with 100 fewer patient exposures, 460 fewer transfusions, and a direct cost savings of $160,000 just in this pilot project. At our institution, in the 18 months since we did this project, not only have transfusions fallen, the, even the, the possibility has fallen because we're, the alert is triggering less often so that the practitioners no longer even need the alert to guide their behavior. They are on their own, um, not even initiating the request to transfuse inappropriately. Um, this you can see, um, even a year after the implementation, we no longer have the alert, has changed the behavior. We've led to a persistent change, which is important. Whether we like it or not, Jeff, we're all gonna have to adopt blood management. JACO is developing a patient blood management certification program that will be part of hospital certification in the U.S., and it will be a mandatory requirement. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Could you first please state your city and country location? And the question is this. Does your institution have an existing blood management protocol or program, or are you considering developing one? And if so, what are the features of that program? The second part of that question is, if you do have a blood management program at your hospital, are you using your electronic medical record or computer order entry system as part of that protocol or program? We're back now with Dr. Alan Doctor. So Alan, ultimately now, how do we weigh this balance between um, raising oxygen delivery through raising oxygen content when needed versus not transfusing the patient and tolerating these lower hemoglobin levels. What framework can we bring to this now that we've removed the old paradigm and we have this data that suggests that transfusions can be harmful? Well, this is an important question, Jeff, and quite honestly, there's no good answer yet. What we've learned is how to do less harm. We haven't yet learned how to do good meaning that we know now that we will cause less harm if we transfuse at a hemoglobin threshold that's more restrictive, but this doesn't really tell us how to decide who really needs the blood. And we've begun to approach this problem as follows. We've been working with human factor engineers to help us map out the decision-making process. We came up with this relatively complicated algorithm, but this is how the decision works. And in fact, it's a complex decision. And the decision isn't always the same. Sometimes when the hemoglobin is eight, you shouldn't give blood. Sometimes you should. And how do we work our way through that? What we've shown and found is that even though you plot out the physiology, what it comes down to is balancing the ability of the patient to tolerate anemia against the likelihood of harm from the transfusion itself. 
The new information that we have now is that we appreciate there's harm from transfusions beyond simple transfusion reactions, hemolytic reactions, and infections. In fact, the red cells can cause harm in other ways, as I've shown you. On the other hand, most patients can tolerate anemia. In fact, a normal human can tolerate anemia all the way down to a hemoglobin of 5 or 4 without developing anaerobic metabolism. Now, we all know that some patients who are critically ill lose physiologic reserve. Either they can't improve uh, respiratory function and maintain full saturation, or they can't improve blood flow. Both of those things need to happen. So when patients become intolerant of anemia, obviously they need to have uh, a transfusion. When the harm associated from anemia in a patient who cannot improve O2 uh, blood flow exceeds the harm that would be caused by a transfusion, it's appropriate to administer it. Right now, we're, we've identified this as a cloud and a series of blue lines. The investigation over the next five years or so hopefully will allow us to fill in that plot. I wonder if I could turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. In your response, could you first please state your city and country location? And the question is this. If we are going to abandon these hemoglobin thresholds, um, as Dr. Doctor has outlined, and instead move to physiologic thresholds, what physiologic parameters or variables would you suggest we adopt or consider for adoption as uh, thresholds and triggers for packed red blood cell transfusions in the future? We're back now with Alan Doctor. Alan, this has been a terrific overview of uh, uh, what's increasingly a, a very complex issue that years ago we thought was a very straightforward uh, decision at the bedside. And you've presented uh, both um, the latest understanding of the science and the literature in a very clear way that made it accessible for all of us. So thank you for being here today. Thank you, Jeff. And to our colleagues around the world, anyone who's interested in working on translational projects or research in this area are welcome to, to contact Dr. Alan Doctor through Open Pediatrics. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.